The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Rees. Now, many of you will know Eric as an author, entrepreneur, and currently leading the long-term stock exchange. But his first taste of entrepreneurship was in the dot-com boom. In fact, it caused his first business to go boom. Following that experience, he decided to travel to Silicon Valley, where he had the expensive slow-motion experience of watching the startups he was involved with fail for lack of customer engagement, slow iteration, and long feedback cycles before finding out if their ideas were any good. This inspired him to start thinking about different ways to work, many of which were counterintuitive to much of the people and collaborators that he worked with. But what Eric found, by tackling these challenges, putting his ideas out there for challenge and feedback, often from hostile audience, allowed him to really start building resilience into his ideas his methods, his ways of working, and helping people learn to unlearn many of the methods that were holding them back and relearn counterintuitive methods to help them succeed in situations of high uncertainty. I founded a company called IMVU, Imbu. And many of us who were involved in that company were refugees from this previous company that had failed. And we had said, look, we're really going to try to do things differently. And that was the first company where... I was both in charge and I also had a very distinctive point of view about how the company should be run. So much more iterative than was considered normal at that time. Just to give people a sense of the history here, I had to write my own A-B testing library from scratch because you couldn't just download one off open source. It wasn't like go sign up for Optimizely. This is the good early days. Yeah. The early days. And when I told people we were going to do split testing in software development, they would be like, why? Isn't that like a direct marketing technique from the mail order days? Like what does it have to do? with engineering. I was like, but shouldn't we use the scientific method to test our hypotheses? And most people thought I was totally nuts. I mean, it was just considered a very countercultural way to work at that time. And I had a lot of ideas like that. I wanted customers involved with our product, like from day one. I wanted to ship much faster and more frequently than was considered at all normal. You know, eventually we would call that technique continuous deployment, but yeah, right. we're no terminology for that because it was too crazy for anyone to try. Yeah. And anyway, my co-founders, I look back on that and I say, gosh, you know, I'm very grateful that they didn't kill me. You know, they could easily have been fired at any time. I was really out there. It was, those things were very extreme. And I remember later, so as the company got more successful, it got more controversial. So in the early days, my techniques worked. People could see the work. So they'd be like, all right, well, this seems nuts, but maybe it's just his idiosyncratic way of working and it's fine. Mm. But as the company got bigger, it got more stressful because now we have something to lose and now we have something to protect. And I remember we would go to board meetings and everyone would say like, hey, wait a minute, shouldn't we do things in a more conventional way? And I, would, I was like constantly explaining, defending trying to rationalize why this was a better way. And I remember having this moment where I was going into one of these board meetings and I thought, this is it. I think I've pushed too far and people are finally sick of me. And they just, when you do things in an unconventional way, every problem the company has gets blamed on the unconventional method, whether it's related or not. So there's plenty of stuff was going wrong. It was a startup, you know, it was chaotic. And I was taking a lot of hits for us doing things in a wacky way. Well, the interesting thing about this though as well is by going through that process, I guess your thinking is getting more resilient, right? Because you're constantly exactly explaining right. to people 
why these ideas have value. And in many ways, I imagine that could have been a seed for your next step. That you explained this stuff so much. I was the explainer in chief, and I got a lot of practice explaining it to a hostile audience. I mean, honestly, very helpful. And so I was going to this board meeting, and I thought to myself, all right, it's possible that I'm finally going to be fired. Like, I really had to look myself in the mirror and say, I think it might be time. So I think if I went in there and I apologized and compromised and said, look, okay, we will do a half-assed thing that it's a compromise, like probably that would be received very well in this meeting. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I said, you know, so I was like, I had the wherewithal to understand that this was a problem. I knew that that was a solution I could adopt. And then I made the conscious choice not to do it. I said, you know what? I'm actually going to go into the meeting and I'm going to advocate for what I actually believe and consequences be damned. And I was really like, it was for me, I was relatively young. This is very stressful for me. I was having a hard time with it, but I rationalized it this way. I said, you know what? This is a small business. It's a small town. Everyone knows everybody. And I want people to know what I stand for. I'm going to stand for something. And then if people don't like it this time and they fire me, you know, okay. But one day they're going to be in a situation where they're like, damn it, we got to get this done faster. Who can you call who believes in going fast, even when it doesn't say, and they're like, hey, remember that guy? All, like we're in a situation where like, we need someone who really understands customers and is empathetic. Like, who could we call for that? Oh, that guy, he was such a pain in the ass, but you know what? At least we know what he stands for. He's for those things. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to build, I guess now today, in the age of Instagram, we would call it a personal brand. Although if you told me that then, I would have thought you were crazy. Like I'm going to stand for something and let the consequences fall where they may. And of course, I radically misjudged the situation. The more I stood for those values and explained them and people actually resonated with that and said, well, this actually sounds great. But I really didn't know. For me, that was the leap of faith. And I think if I had never actually had the courage to cross over that line to say, like, I'm willing to put my career and reputation at risk, I never would have found out who the ideas resonate with. And I never would have been able to take it to that next level. For me, that was a really important turning point. Yeah, well, I think what's great here is just as you're sort of applying a lot of this systematic testing to your products, yeah. you're applying it systematically to your ideas as well. And really the customers of these ideas are often the people sitting across from you in the boardroom, mm -hmm. trying to get them to understand this method and what it can drive, as well as the methods you're using to build these products in that way. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. We used to have a rule at InView that new engineers, when we would hire them, they had to ship software to production on their first day. Like, but you could start at nine o'clock and by five o'clock, you had to hit the button to do a deployment or something. Like it was considered basically a catastrophe if it, you know, maybe if it flipped to the second day, we could live with it. But like if it were the third day and we've shipped nothing, like we would have a five alarm fire crisis. And the reason, partly that was like substantive to like make sure that we get people up on the tooling and it forced us to really make like, you had to make like getting a new sandbox and do it. Like it made this stuff really easy. Otherwise you couldn't meet this goal. But also it was a real acculturation moment for employees. Cause you, you know, we, I would frequently be hiring someone who's like a 10 year veteran of the software industry. You know, we pull out of Yahoo or something and they would sit down and I'd say, listen, you're going to ship to production today. And they say, well, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. And I'd be like, I know, I hear you. I know you're not used to this environment, but this is how we do things here. I want you to understand. And some people would react with fear. So oh, some people would say like, oh my yeah. God, what if I take the site down? What would be the consequence? They're like terrified to push the button. And I remember we had to sit them down and say, listen, our philosophy here is if it's so easy to take the site down that you can do it on your first day, shame on us for making it so easy. And our systems are poorly architected and have poor defenses. So don't worry. Our systems are immune you can't blow it up. Now, I wish I could say that no one ever took the site down on their first day. Not true. We would have, sometimes we would blow it and they would in fact stumble on something. And of course, that was a chance for us to teach them our values, which was, it's okay. Guess who's responsible for making sure that never happens again? Right? Yeah, you, well, that's you. I love this story because it, it is tackling fear 
but it's also building resiliency, not only into your software systems, but your culture and the people you work with. That's right. One of my other favorite examples like that is uh, John Allspaw, who used to run engineering sure. at Etsy. You know, that was a classic one for him as well, right? Like he made everyone do a deployment on the first day, you know, to make people feel safe by doing something what everyone else said was risky. Yeah. What's risky is having undeployed code. Just like to fundamentally rewire your brain to understand what's safe and what's risky, what's wasteful and what's efficient. I mean, these ideas, and this has been a problem in lean manufacturing going back decades, these ideas are counterintuitive. They cut against our intuition and that causes great frustration and difficulty for people. So like if you're going to have counterintuitive ideas baked into your culture, you're going to have to help people rewire around that. So some people respond with fear, like I was talking about, but some people would respond with defensiveness and anger. Some people would be like, listen, kid, you don't understand. I'm a veteran of the industry. This is not how things are done. What you need to do is create a technical requirements document, and then we'll do a specification process, and then blah, 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 and six months from now, this bug will be fixed if you're lucky. And I would be like, and so I would have to be like, listen, with all due respect, in this situation, you work for me, so we're going to try it my way first, and then if you don't like it, you can tell me about how your way is better. But first you're going to try, and I was like the green eggs and ham strategy. And it, it was very effective. Most people who've tried working in a lean way, it's rare for someone to go back the other way. And in fact, I remember once, <laughs> bringing back all these memories. I was once giving a talk about lean startup in the early day, very early days, like 10 years ago. And I noticed as I was doing my Q&A, one of my employees from InView was standing right there Someone who was not necessarily the hugest fan of my way of working when he actually worked for me. And I'm like, oh God, he's going to stand up in the meeting and say something about whatever. And I was always just terrified. I had my eye on him the whole time. Like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And there was somebody, it was so cranky person in the audience who was like, this isn't going to work and the whatever. And the guy's like, well, excuse me, I've actually seen it. And I was like, oh God, what's he going to say? <laughs> but even though he and I would fight all the time, like he was totally converted. And so he was like, oh yeah, you guys don't understand me. Like, you may not think Eric knows what he's talking about. I certainly didn't think he knew what he was talking about. But like, let me tell you, he couldn't admit that what I was saying was correct. Like he was very focused on what the other person was saying was wrong. And I was like, that's good enough for me. <laughs> that's right. He's like waterfall. He's terrible. And it will never work. And you shouldn't do it. And you shouldn't. And he was right there. I'll right you. there and have my back. It's so, it's so funny about all these examples. The guy who was resistant. The guy who was afraid. The guy who was mad. I mean, there was a... Uh, well, there's many of these people, right? I had a woman who had almost had a nervous breakdown. Like she was so upset at the way it would do things. And, and what he was interesting that they all had in common, eventually every one of those arguments would be resolved in my favor because structurally I'm the one doing the hiring. So what are you going to do? But even after I would win the argument, even after I would green eggs and ham them and they would try it and they would like it, they would still ask me the question, but why? Why does this work? This seems like it shouldn't work. And yet it does. And in the early years of my career, I literally didn't know the answer. I was just like, well, it just seems, first I tried, try it, you'll like it. Then I tried, well, just come look at the evidence with your own eyes, and then that will convert you. That doesn't work. <laughs> then I tried, just trust me. No, that doesn't work. Then I was like, well, I think it's intuitively right. Let's see if you find it intuitively right. No, you have to be able to answer people's questions about why. And that was another important turning point for me because I became resolved that I would find out why. I asked everyone I knew at that time, what business books can I read? I want to know about this. How do I become educated about it? I read Taichi Ono's Toyota Production System. This book translated into English is like the most frustrating book ever. Of course, yeah. But yeah. it's, I mean, now I really appreciate it. He is an artist as well as an engineer, but it's written in a very Japanese style. It's very indirect and metaphorical. And the first time I read it, I was like, what the, what is he talking about? This is not helpful. And then I read Lean Thinking, which is like the American book that broke open lean manufacturing to the world. 
And I remember reading, and I was like, finally, this is a theoretical framework that makes sense to me. And I see how I can adapt it and use it in my own work. So then I was like, great, perfect, problem solved. I told all my engineers, everyone, please read this book about lean manufacturing, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And nobody got it. Well, this is really interesting. You know, like, okay. what the heck is manufacturing have to do with software? Well, the interesting part, like even just listening to you share these stories, like you naturally have a bias for action. Yeah. And your intuition is a natural experimenter. So you're used to just trying things, doing things in small batches, iterating. It's just sort of built into your intentionality. But that's intuitive to you. And it's hard for other people to see it. That's right. So it's very interesting to hear how you were trying to even reverse engineer a way to describe to people what is intuitive to you so they could make it intentional. Now that Lean Startup is considered obvious by so many people, they don't understand that it was an overnight success 10 years in the making like anything. Mm. It took a long time. And like, I still have, I have these old prototypes of like alternate theories. Like Lean Startup was not the first attempt like, oh, to I, explain this. I can't imagine it was, yeah. So many, like I had this theory for a while that running a startup team is like a biological cell and has a nucleus. And the, it's like a way of describing how, how to build a cross-functional team. So like yeah, product great. and engineering, and then they have this nucleus, and then there's these other organelles, and there's a semi-permeable membrane. between. And I remember trying to, people would look at me, they're like, what the bleep are you talking <laughs> about? This I used to run new employee orientation, and I used to give people the orientation about our culture. And people would just look at me with these glassy stares. You just ever, have you ever been in an audience where people are not getting it? Yeah, yeah. And you sound like a lunatic. So I was going through example after example. I, I tried calling it, I went to Steve Blank for advice. He's a genius. And he created this theory called customer development, which is very important in my intellectual development. And I remember going to him and I said, how do I teach this to engineers? We were brainstorming about it. And he was like, well, just call it customer development engineering. And I was like, great, perfect. And he's like, how will everybody read my book? And then they can read your blog post about customer development. I was like, this is going to be great. So I, you know, I went, I made everyone on my team read The Four Steps of the Epiphany. I was like, hey, everybody, customer development, whatever. And they'd be like, what? Just glassy stares. And I, I mean, I tried yeah. so many things to explain it. And it was really like, we call it Lean Startup now because that's what worked. That was what was effective at helping people understand all these counterintuitive ideas and making it seem familiar enough that people could be comfortable with it, but then still different enough that it can be a bold step. And that's always the thing with reform. You have to find that perfect balance of familiarity and novelty. You can't be too radical. You can't be too conservative. And Throughout my career, I've often tried to come back to like, what is the reform that is needed now that's in that sweet spot that can move people to the next step and the next step and the next step? Yeah, that's really a nice lesson for people to take away. And like, I even remember discovering your content, right? You were still working in smaller batches, like shipping blog oh, yeah. posts all the time. And you could see, even when you look back now, you could see the thinking evolving, the mm -hmm. communication of those ideas evolving very much just like a product would evolve as you ship Absolutely. different features and learn. I'm an engineer at heart, so I think of everything as a product. My very first big, big Lean Startup lecture, I got invited to speak, what was it called back then? The Web 2.0 Expo. So I wasn't even like a main stage keynote speaker. I was in like one of the breakout rooms, but it was still like a room could hold like seven, 800 people. So it was like a big, for me, I never given a big speech, big audience. And I remember getting this book, this thing, and I said, okay, well now I need like, that speech as a product. So how do I know I have the right product? So I was like, okay, first step, got to get out of books and prototype sessions. So I like, I, I remember uh, giving a little talk to like a small group at Stanford. It was like four or five talks, like practice talks that I gave, really, really tiny audiences. I did a talk for like seven people in the back of a Bucks, not Bucks, uh, 
Hobie's. Hobie's breakfast place. I went to a breakfast group, like a group of product managers that got together once a month. I was going to say, uh, doing one at a books party would be quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, it was me and seven people. And I was like, but, you know, I was like, I need to practice. So I did the practice. And then I was like, you know what I need? I need a customer advisory board for this talk. So I built a customer advisory board. I had people from different parts of the industry. And I just said, listen, rip this deck to shreds. Let me practice on you. What do you think? How do we? And I had very, and I, was, I really, I worked hard at it. I focused on getting people in the room. I was promoting the talk on my blog. I like had a way for people to ask me questions. Like I was like, I got to treat this seriously. And I'll tell you another funny story. I didn't know this at the time. I just thought it was normal, but I had done such a good job promoting it. Plus, it was like a lot of early buzz about Lean Startup, and nobody knew who I was. I was like a total unknown person who like showed up on the scene with these blog posts that everyone was talking. So I didn't know what was going to happen. So the room was packed. I mean, there were like standing room only, 800 people there. And I didn't realize this until later that I had apparently sucked all the attendance out of the other breakouts for that hour slot. And they're like several people were for years pissed at me at all, for all get out. But I like ruined their <laughs> session. I, I didn't know this. So anyway, I had I'd arranged with the organizers that we would walk out of that session, I'd walk to a different room and I'd do an open Q&A, unconference style. And so I give my talk, seemed like it went well. I was really nervous, but you know, proud that people seemed like they enjoyed it. And I start walking to the room and I get to the place where the room is and I can't get in because the hallway outside the room is packed with people. And I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna be late. You know, I'm sitting there really stressing out. Like I need to get into this room to do my Q&A. And the previous speaker, you know, there was just back to back to back in this room. Like the previous speaker would be incredibly rude that they haven't vacated the room so that I can come in. And I'm like, and I don't like, I don't know what to do. Do I just leave and give up? Do I whatever? And one of my friends comes by who had been in the audience and he's like, he's like, congratulations on the talk. That was great. Hey, where's your Q&A? And I'm like, it's supposed to be in this room. And he's like, what are you doing out here? I was like, I'm waiting for them to clear the room. He's like, you idiot. These people are here to see you. They're waiting for you. You can't wait for them. You're there waiting for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? Why would all these people, what are they here? I was like, I just gave a talk. What do they need? And like. That was the moment for me. I was like, wait a minute. People are actually interested in what I have to say. And we found a wavelength that resonates. So I like found a way to communicate in a way that people found compelling. It was a really a very moving experience. Well, what I love about these stories and very much about what you're describing is you're very much focusing on principles all the time. Mm-hmm. Thinking about customer engagement, getting feedback from customers, working in small batches, testing your ideas with people, getting yeah. feedback, improving whether that's a company, whether that's an idea, whether it's a talk, you're sort of living and breathing this stuff, and um, which is great, right? It's again, I think so. I mean, it works. So <laughs> it's helpful. It works. Keep doing it. <laughs> I know. That's now I've just become intuitive for me. So now it's my kind of go-to playbook almost when it's like, look, when you're not sure what to do, like these are the ways to break it down. And it, it wasn't until later that I understood the importance of that iteration happening within the context of a long-term vision. So that was another early shock for me was of the early companies that were disciples of this way of working. Some people took it the way that we now, people understand Lean Startup, I think, pretty well. Scientific hypothesis, testing philosophy, small batches, as you say, you know, a pivot, right? A change in strategy without a change in vision. It's logically incoherent to have a pivot if you have no vision, because how can you change strategy? Well, keep the vision if you don't have a vision. But that way of describing it, that took several years to work out. And it's like a lot of theoretical work that had to go into this. And I remember in the very early years, some of the real evangelists for this, they were like, this is great. This will turn my startup into a spreadsheet. And all I have to do is A-B test my way to success. I don't have to have any vision. I don't have to do any of this. I don't even have to talk to customers. I just A-B test and anything that makes things go up into the right, boom, that's where you go. And like a couple of those companies, I remember like you wind up selling pornography like in no time. 
Well, or some other kind of like astrology or something fraudulent. Like it's a terrible, terrible way to go. Well, what happens is when people don't understand the principles, they focus on practices and they hear a practice they like and they just try to apply the practice in as any context. Yeah. And then we're doing it. And then you end up with the kind of results you're describing totally. there. And, and, and if that's you look theater. at the people who are angry at Lean Startup, Lean Startup is still controversial. It's by no means universally praised. But like it, the Fuhrer has died down as it's kind of taken over the world. But we still have our critics. If you read their criticism, most of the time I'm like, this criticism is right on. They're not attacking my ideas. Like, but I understand. Like, I understand what's happened. I'm very sympathetic. I'm like, somebody who thinks they know what Lean Startup is has told this person that all it is is turning the crank and A-B test. They've conflated the principle for the tactics. And so this person now reacting against that, and they think that's my fault. I'm sympathetic to the point where I'm like, it is partially my fault. I don't think, you know, like if I could have done a perfect job communicating these ideas, the absolute best way they could be communicated, probably less people would have that misconception. So to the extent that people have that misconception, I, that's, I take responsibility for that. Now, it doesn't mean that they're right. Well, I remember once I had this fight with somebody and they were really angry with me and said a bunch of nasty things. I had to check myself. I was like, you know what? Did I forget to include this in the book, that this is important? I was like, I'm going to go back and reread the book until the page I get to the page where I explain this. So I was like, let me just check it's in there. It's literally on page like 14. It's in the introduction. <laughs> it's like page, you know, XIV. It's not even like the main body of the text. It's like, please note, this requires vision and hypothesis and everything. Part one of the book is called vision. Like, I think I was pretty clear, but like, okay, but that doesn't matter. And this goes, I think, to the point that you've been raising is like, Everyone wants credit for putting best effort. I'm like, no, especially as an entrepreneur, like we got to be judged for results. So like if people got confused, all right, I'll own that. And that gives me the motivation to do better. I'm like, well, can I learn a better way to talk about it? That's what's pushed me to keep refining the ideas, keep getting better at it, write more books, like figure out other ways to help people understand what we're doing. And then it's also pushed me to refine the ideas. I think there's a lot of things that 10 years ago I would have endorsed as perfectly fine. And now I say, you know what, that's not the best way. And we've learned new things. So if we don't keep it alive that way, you know, it's going to ossify into dogma and then into irrelevance. And I don't want that to happen. Yeah. And I think it's this constant iteration piece. As we roll forward now, you're sort of tackling a whole new group of people <laughs> that you're trying to help reform yeah. who have a whole different perspective. So you're almost not just back in a boardroom. You're in boardrooms of boardrooms of boardrooms of oh, yes. industries, oh, yes. of regulators, trying to explain to them why a counterintuitive method from how they've run their industry for tens of decades of years oh, yeah. is the way that they need to shift their thinking and behavior. So how's that going for you? Uh, let me tell you, it's a major lifestyle downgrade. <laughs> <laughs> it's rough. You know, it's funny. People joke about the smoke-filled back rooms where I've been in those rooms now. Like for all, everyone who thinks those people are paranoid, oh no, those did, rooms exist. Did you people, get a purple corduroy or velvet jacket? No, to I go stand in there out or? like a sore thumb because I don't dress appropriately. And the people, who is this guy? What's he doing here? And like people talk about rent-seeking and regulatory capture, and like I have witnessed those phenomena in the flesh, and it's it's real. Our yeah. system has severe defects, and I have seen them up close and personal. But for some reason, instead of getting depressed by this realization, I find it energizing. Because to me, it's like, okay, the problems that afflict our world, they're not inevitable, magical, impossible. They're just people doing their thing. And so like, there are these rooms, but like with diligent effort, you can get into the room. We just uh, a few weeks ago got SEC approval to operate the long-term stock exchange. So that's taken, depending on how you count, like by basically three years, to get that done. I've been personally working on it for almost nine years. 
So with sufficient, like, so that was painful and difficult, but yeah. like it is doable. And I remember I spent years trying to understand what would it take to change public companies so that they weren't so short-term focused, so that they were more multi-stakeholders, so that they felt the same pressure to build products that are healthy for human beings that they feel for their financial metrics. People are not born caring about financial metrics. We create incentives that drive that behavior. So if we can create those incentives, we can create different incentives. And this idea was so controversial that when I wrote about it in The Lean Startup, so when I was writing the book, the book came out in 2011, and I ate my own dog food, the manuscript for Lean Startup, as we've been talking about here, it was thoroughly tested, beta tested, MVPs, chapter comprehension tests and stuff. Torn apart, and, rebuilt. Oh, man. The thing was battle-hardened by the time it got published. And one of the last steps of the testing was I picked elite industry insider types and had them read the whole manuscript and give me their feedback. So like business school professors, VCs, serious people to say, listen, here's what I think the final product should be. You know, how does this resonate with you? And of course they were like, this is total garbage and we have to redo it again. <laughs> Every step you rebuild it, you rebuild, yeah, you rebuild, you rebuild it. Listen, you, if you got to have the emotional fortitude to take negative feedback about yourself, it's very personal and you know, it was, you, you know, it's, well, it's you're, hard, very you're constantly hard. putting yourself out there. With constantly. It. So I had somebody, I'll never forget this. He wrote me back. He'd said, the manuscript is great, except for one thing. At the end, you propose this idea for a long-term stock exchange. That idea is so bad that in one page, you flush away all the credibility you have carefully built up over 299 preceding pages, and you must remove it. You have to take it out. And I remember being really upset at first. I was like, oh, God, this is terrible. And then I thought to myself, you know, people used to say that about Lean Startup. And I was like, that's interesting that he cared so much. And then I, so I started to ask, you know, it just became my conversational thing. I would ask people, hey, I have this idea, fix the financial system in this way, and people would go nuts for it. I've never had a more polarizing idea I've ever suggested. And cert- I mean, I have these conversations where people would give me endless lectures on the efficient market hypothesis and how this is doomed to failure and it can't be made to work and all kinds of stuff. And be- I think because I'd had that experience with Lean Startup, I was like, this isn't so bad. I've people, been here before. I was like, I've seen this movie before. Yeah, I recognize these and angry just, faces. Yeah, like people are really upset. They think it's a bad idea. But and listen, I've had genuinely bad ideas too. I've seen what that's like. <laughs> the kicker, the thing that really like gets my antenna up is when people vehemently oppose something, but their arguments for why are poor. Our status quo. Yeah, they're trying to find a way to defend the status quo, but they're not doing a very good job. Like their arguments are not very compelling. They're kind of just barely coherent. And that to me is always a signal that like people are reacting emotionally, not rationally. And maybe they themselves don't even understand how the status quo works. Well, I think that point you make about they don't understand why they're doing it. Yeah. Because that practice has been put on them. That's the only practice that they know. Mm-hmm. What's the principle about why I do that practice? They don't necessarily know. And that goes all the way back to being the explainer in chief for a lean startup. I was once that person. I did things and I didn't know why. And people would challenge me on it. And I think a very human way to, to react when challenged is F you, you know, I'm going to oh, absolutely, I'm gonna yeah. fight you. But I really tried hard to cultivate intellectual honesty in my life. That's just one of my values. And so I tried hard not to react defensively. I'm sure many of my former employees are like, oh, yeah, that's how, that's, how, <laughs> that's how you see it, buddy. You thought that was not what I was trying. Guys, I was really trying to act non-defensively, to listen to those criticisms and to try to internalize and learn and improve from it. And I, you know, I think that practice over a lifetime has helped me. And certainly for LTSE, it's such a complicated product. It is such a complicated project. I think of it as like the highest degree difficulty type of startup you can have, you know, right up there with like launching rockets. It's like high regulatory 
hurdles, extremely powerful entrenched players who you know have deep pockets to oppose what you're doing, a very expensive upfront development costs, a really multifunctional team requirement. You have to kind of like translate between the regional dialects of San Francisco, New York, and DC, multi-sided market dynamics. So you need to find a value proposition that works simultaneously for companies, VCs, the buy side, the sell side, and you know, and regulators all at the same time. So very high degree of difficulty. And there's no way we could have had as much success as we've had if not for the fact that, you know, we had, as a team, we really embraced these principles in a deep way and everyone committed themselves to like a real process of learning and discovery for the whole life cycle of the company. Yeah, no, it's fantastic what you're doing there, you know, and I think one of the things that's always interesting when you are pushing up against those industry norms, like a lot of those people in those very complex environments that you've described, they've invested years learning how to play that game. That's right. And they know how the game works and they know how to manipulate the game. Mm -hmm. So when people are trying to change the rules of the game, where you're playing a game you're really good at, <laughs> that you like, that you know how to manipulate, that you know how to it's influence. It's very threatening. It's very threatening. And I've become so sympathetic to my opponents. This is true in Lean Startup and, and in LTSC. Like, and culture change in companies. Yeah, in general. like when I would work in big companies, and I'll give you an example. This is a funny one. I've done a number of transformations in companies that are manufacturing based and so have like a lean or a Six Sigma background. And in those companies, there's generally process leaders whose job is to maintain whatever the process is, Six Sigma or, you know, like the Six Sigma, they actually have black belts and there's a whole, Six Sigma is very Certified rigid. in everything. Yeah, very certified, certifiable <laughs> process. And I remember, um, it's so funny, I was, so I was in a regional manufacturing facility in the Midwest somewhere well, the company figured out pretty quickly that in this transformation, I was really good at converting people from absolutely opposed to neutral. You know, neutral to positive is easy, but but from like, I will <laughs> strangle you to neutral. That's what you save the big guns for. I was like, that when I would be sent in, when I when I like an executive really didn't get it, they would sometimes send me to meet with them. So when we would do this tour of transformation workshops and they would send me to meet the Six Sigma black belt process leader in the regional office, which usually was a perfectly friendly conversation. Most of those people, but I remember one time there was a guy who was just, who was not really getting it. And I was having a hard time listening to what he was saying because on his desk, there was a mug and the mug said the following, the following slogan reading. And it said, failure is not an option. And I just couldn't get over it. I was sitting there being like, what kind of person would have this mug on their desk? What does it say about them and their life? And I was like, they must believe that failure is always caused by incompetent execution. I was like, what a life. Can you imagine if that was true in your life? I was like, this person's had a really interesting life. And I was like, okay, the great entrepreneurs that I admire, what would their mug say? <laughs> like, can you imagine Elon Musk has a mug? Would it say failure is not an option? No, it, you know, like any of these guys you admire the most, like if I, if I had a mug, it would say, I eat failure for breakfast. <laughs> If I get to noon and I only fail 12 times today, like that's a really good day. That's an unusually low number of, I mean, like, and you're in a startup, man, it's like Muppet Labs, like things are exploding constantly and failure is not caused by incompetent execution. I mean, sometimes it is, but most of the time it's caused by the fundamental uncertainty of the thing you were trying to do where you didn't even know how to define success. And then that realization allowed me to be very sympathetic with that person to say, listen, I hear that you're worried about this, rightfully so. You live in an environment, like when you do Six Sigma, it works really well for these kinds of products. I started explaining to him the kinds of projects that Six Sigma works great for. He's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, you don't want someone to threaten and screw that up. He's like, absolutely not. I said, that's your right to be defensive. But have you noticed that sometimes you have these other kind of projects 
projects where like no one can even define what the X's and the Y's are because it's super high uncertainty. He's like, oh yeah, that stuff drives me crazy. He's like, why do people try to apply six sigma to that? It doesn't make sense. You can't have five, nine. Like he starts, and I'm like, right. Wouldn't it be interesting if there was a six sigma compatible philosophy that could be used in the domain of, and I started explaining it and he was like, yeah, boy, that would be great. And I'm like, well, hey, guess what? <laughs> I got good news for you, my friend. Like we're allies here. We're just using the right tool for the right job and the right, and he was like, went from absolutely, you know, thought I was going to strangle me to, to coming around. And I've had that experience over and over again, where if you really get sympathetic, I've met a lot of regulators, policymakers, congressional staffers, members of Congress. Some of those people are bad. There's like bureaucrats who really are out to get you. And there's politicians who live up to the stereotype. But the vast majority of them, they went into public service for high-minded reasons. And they're yeah. trying to do a difficult job under adverse circumstances. And if you really come to understand that, you can start to see the world from their point of view. And then you can start to realize, okay, now that I understand what you really care about, can we meet to discuss how I can make sure that the plans I'm proposing to you, in fact, comport with your values? That's like a sign of respect that anyone in the world can appreciate. Yeah, I, I think what's obvious as I spend time here listening to you is you do have deep empathy for the customers that you're trying to help. That's right. Be it regulators, be it people in the line with failure is not an option. <laughs> like you really try to understand them. And I think you use that information very well to help them understand you and also right. recognize that lean startup or your method isn't just a one size fits all approach either, helping them recognize where they'll get more value from it and where they may can still continue doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think always giving people that option empathizes with them. It shows that you're listening to them. It shows you actually have positive intent. You're trying to improve certain parts of the portfolio of options that they've got to look that's at. That's right. That's right. You know, and I think underlining that for people, I think is very important. Because that's a system that you're, again, intuitively using because that's just the way you do things. That's the way you see the world. Yeah. And I think helping people recognize that technique, that they can apply that, whether they're trying to talk to their boss about why they could run an A-B test, whether they're trying to think about a company and how we could build a new product. You know, these very simple tactics can have really profound effects. And it's interesting to hear how you're scaling those up and down from the person on the plant line to That's hopefully right. the president of um, the regulatory body known as uh, the New York Stock Exchange or whoever you're going to tackle next. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you see it in terms of, of empathy because I think most people have an association with empathy or these kind of like soft skills, you know, as kind of like a charity. You know, you do it out of the goodness of your heart because you're a kind person. But there's, so there's like stuff like that that you do if you're feeling like it. And then there's other things that you do to be effective at your job. But actually, I mean, I really think that that is the path to much greater effectiveness. And I, you know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, managers, leaders, CEOs, all kinds of people, you know, in my work now. But the one thing that like almost everybody can completely agree on is that the number of people in this on God's green earth who you can assign a task to and be confident they will in fact do the task as assigned on time is extremely low. <laughs> Like most leaders are just like, can you please, can somebody find me one person who I can just ask to do a simple task and they actually do it? And if you think about what's going on there, it's that most people don't have very much empathy for the person giving them the task. If they did, they would want to understand what does it mean to do a thoroughly good job of this task and then try to do it. Almost everybody wants to do a good job. 
But like very few people actually take the extra step to find out what a good job in fact would look like and get it done. So most people are just like, well, you gave me this task. I did it, you know, and now it's complete. And it's like, well, well, you don't understand the motivation behind the task. You don't understand the principle of the situation changed. Like, why didn't you know this other thing? And of course, you know, that's just the, like, the, the conflict between bosses and their subordinates in time immemorial. And people mostly see having empathy and being clear in your communication as the boss's obligation to the subordinate, which, I mean, fair enough. One of my favorite managers once told me this. He had a, he had a saying that there was, in any given situation, there's 200% responsibility to go around. So if two people try to collaborate on something and it goes badly, like either party can take 100% responsibility for the situation if they want to, no matter who's the subordinate, who's the boss, none of that stuff matters. You can always take responsibility. And yet the, the number of people that naturally do that is it's very low. And I think it's that people don't see the person giving them the work that they're supposed to do as a customer who's paying you to get an outcome. And then people are upset because they don't advance in their career. Or they don't have the outcomes that they want to have. And it's like, well, did you do the work to really understand what you're being asked and why? Did you do the work to understand what's going on? And I know some people that have a knack for that or who are willing to put in the work to do that. And they're just so much more effective at everything they try to do. Well, I think the bit for me is like empathy leads to quality of information. Totally. Right. If, if you are really willing to listen to people and they feel that they're being heard, the quality of information that you get just skyrockets. Mm-hmm. And again, that's the input for you to make decisions with. You know, if you're rude to people, if you're pushing <laughs> on people, if they feel defensive or are not safe, the quality of information you're going to get is going to be lower. Mm-hmm. So even if you make a great decision with that information, it's probably going to turn into a negative result. But when you have high quality information and you've got a good decision making process, you have a better chance of getting results moving in the direction you want. Yeah, that's right. There's no guarantees, but you can increase your probability. I mean, that's all we're talking about here is in the world of high uncertainty, probability is everything. And so can we nudge that probability of success a little bit in our favor? So looking forward now, what are some of the things that have got you excited? What are you looking forward to at the moment? Well, I mean, we've just had this major milestone with LTSE. So I feel incredibly grateful to now have the opportunity to go you know, prosecute that opportunity in, in, a, in a big way. And it's gotten me really reflecting on the state of institutions in our society more generally, because of course, like the stock exchanges, capital markets, the financial system is, is but one set of institutions that people, if you talk to ordinary people in our society, they generally have this feeling that something has gone wrong with our institutions, right? You got to just see that in the backlashes you see to stuff and the- oh, Especially the, in this city like San Francisco. Oh my goodness. I don't even get me started, right? But just generally speaking, people have lost respect for our institutions and there's kind of this big debate about why. And I feel like this process has educated me about why. I think I actually now finally understand what's going on. It, like we have a, a serious infrastructure problem in our society. All, all first world countries do, but but especially in the U.S., we have massively underinvested in infrastructure. We have a lot of infrastructure to decay. But luckily, with physical infrastructure, I shouldn't say luckily, but like with, at least with physical infrastructure, when a bridge is physically in danger of collapsing, you can see the physical infrastructure is deteriorated. Oh, that's a problem. But when something is an institution, institutional infrastructure is invisible. So when an institution has suddenly ceased to exist in a world where economic logic supports its existence, nobody notices. Nothing happens immediately. It's hard to see. But just slowly, the thing starts to collapse. Here's a set of institutions that have all simultaneously collapsed all at the same time. And the question I want us to think about is why. Um, Let's start with hotels. Used to be you had to have hotels to have a place to stay when you travel, but no longer. Now we don't need hotels anymore. 
But hotels didn't go away. They're still there. And they still invest a lot of money in developing hotels, and they're still a profitable business. And yet the underlying economic logic of hotel, I wouldn't say it has disappeared, but it's changed. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to respond, and you know they're locked in this battle with Airbnb. But like at some level, why can Airbnb like rally people to their cause, and the hotel industry in general cannot, and kind of has to result to backdoors, skullduggery and stuff? It's because like I think at some level, people understand Airbnb has the right of this argument. Okay, hotels, schools. What, do we need schools? This we, is what, now you're getting me excited. Can we educate children without schools? It used to be the answer to that was no, but now it's pretty clear that the answer to that is yes. So do we still need schools? Universities are having a massive crisis because the business model, the economic logic of universities has suddenly and all of a sudden collapsed. Now we're, at, we're starting to see the first wave of liberal arts university bankruptcies, and it's about to get really bad. Political parties. Political parties used to provide an incredibly important service in our society acting as gatekeepers and filters for ideas and candidates. And then all of a sudden, they all, all, every political party in the world suddenly collapsed. All of a sudden, people don't need political parties anymore. Like, what happened? Unions. Goodbye. What happened? All of a sudden, unions. Healthcare is the one that Hospitals. I'm... Hospitals. I'm getting excited about that. I have a friend of mine who's one of the great healthcare entrepreneurs of our time. And he said to me, if you were an alien and you observed our society from a distance... People would assume that hospitals were a especially vicious form of prison that you sent people to when they've committed an egregious crime. They're not places of health. They're places of disease. And you're much more likely to die in a hospital. than in the, And so all of a sudden, we don't need hospitals. Like, do we need hospitals? Well, these are the great questions that are in front of us. Right. And Isn't so, like, what are the odds that, by coincidence, hospitals, schools, hotels, stock markets, unions, political parties, newspapers have all suffered the same fate at the same time? And it's not some broader underlying thing. This is not a coincidence. Our whole society, every institution we have was organized and structured, you know, by our grandparents for a very specific purpose. And now the world has changed around us. And we've been especially neglectful grandchildren. So we, we share the blame in this for sure. But that the world has changed. And we have not understood our own institutions at the level of principles. So we're just slavishly following the tactics. And now we're confused. Why isn't it working? So we have to get serious about this. I think this is one of the big challenges of our society going forward is how do we do what our grandparents did? They had to learn these lessons the really hard way. And God, I pray for my kids' sake that we we are able to learn them in a less expensive way, a less painful way. But I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's how do you get on it? Well, I think this is one of the most interesting parts, right? How information is now becoming so democratized through the internet and how we can push that information to people whether it's education and people who could not go to specific schools right, or afford right, this right, education exactly. and how they can access it. I think these are really interesting questions about how we're changing society. And yet people are holding on to the practices that they have always done. What else do you expect? And it's on us. Like we as an elite, people think elite is a bad word, but I think we just need to acknowledge that like our societies are led by an elite class of people. Those of us who've had the privilege of being educated a certain way, have been given the economic opportunities of a certain kind, have the platform to speak. We are a small percentage of the population who wield disproportionate influence, and we have to take our responsibilities seriously as an elite. Okay. We have to confront these problems on behalf of the whole society. And if we fail in that responsibility, we will be replaced. It's been great having you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a rare treat for me to get to have this level of conversation. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for having you on the show. All right. Easy.